Hello and welcome to Beyond Boundaries. I'm Justin Douglas. So happy you can join me for this episode of Beyond Boundaries. Please consider checking out the Patreon page and supporting the Beyond Boundaries podcast if you're able. That's patreon.com forward slash Beyond Boundaries podcast. You can also help by sharing, subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It makes a huge difference. Hope you enjoy this episode of Beyond Boundaries. So this year on Beyond Boundaries, I'm going to be doing something a little bit different. We're going to do a lot of interviews, but I'm also going to have some episodes where I share what I'm learning or things I'm finding compelling or interesting. And today I want to start that off. I want to share about a unique interaction between Jesus and a Pharisee. And what we're going to call this is Encounters with Jesus, this series, if you will, of Encounters with Jesus that I might share about. I've found this story and the details really helpful for me on my spiritual journey. And who knows, maybe it'll be helpful for yours as well. So uh, I'm in the book of John, in John chapter 3, and I'm going to read some of the verse or some of the passage, and then I'm going to kind of share a little bit of context for you, maybe um, some details you might not have been aware of or, or some ways of seeing the scripture that might be helpful for, uh, for you and for us. And so uh, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, uh, now there was a Pharisee. Um, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And so some context right off the bat. First things first, this is a Pharisee, uh, a Pharisee uh, that is a member of the Jewish ruling council. This is the Sanhedrin. Um, at the time, these are like the elite of the elite uh, religious people. Um, think like popes and bishops, I guess. I don't know. They're, they're the keepers, the gatekeepers of um, the faith. And everyone would look to them and they would rule on different things too. So like they would they, they were also kind of like lawyers in some way too. They were teachers and lawyers and 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 guardians of the Jewish faith. And so this is the context through, with Nic- through which uh, Nicodemus, this Pharisee, is coming to Jesus as being in a position of a lot of authority and a lot of power, but he's seeing what Jesus is doing and, and he recognizes that what Jesus is doing is quite powerful in its own right, that, that if Jesus were not from God uh, in some way or that wasn't connected to God, he, he wouldn't be able to be doing the things that he is doing. And so Nicodemus recognizes this, and, and maybe there's others on the Jewish ruling council or the Sanhedrin that recognize this as well. But Nicodemus is the only one who's like um, to the point to where he's willing to, to kind of take this risk and come to Jesus. And, and, and by the way, uh, talking to Jesus might have been a little bit taboo, uh, especially because Jesus is doing things that are really challenging um, the boundaries, if you will, that these boundary keepers, the the Sanhedrin, are 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 charted to keep. It's kind of their job to to make sure that people stay within the boundaries. And Jesus is this new teacher on the block who's kind of uh, teaching a little bit differently than them. And this is this is a struggle for them to hear some of what he's saying or how he's going about saying it. And uh, Nicodemus wants to know more, but Nicodemus wants to be very careful. Because what he doesn't want to do is get kicked out of the tribe that he's a part of or, or, or get said that he what he's doing uh, is in conflict with his role on the Sanhedrin. And so I think it's unique and it really sets up the whole story that the scriptures make it very clear that he came to Jesus at night. 
Um, at night is a clear detail. This is when, like, if you're ever reading the Bible and you just fly through details, it's really important to kind of pause and be like, why might that detail be important? Well, the detail about Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night is really important because he's trying to come under the cover of night. Like, he doesn't want anyone to know that he's coming to Jesus and, and asking the questions that he's about to ask and, and approaching him in the way that he's about to approach him with curiosity and, and, an, and a seeming openness. And so, so I think it's important right out the gate that, that, that we identify these two characters. Jesus is this new teacher. Uh, at this point, we're only in the third chapter of John, so it's really new. Um, and, and Nicodemus is this kind of uh, veteran. He could be young, but ultimately the position that he's in is a position of power, privilege, and his goal or his, his you know, mandate, his charter in his role is to kind of hold the boundaries, uh, keeper of the faith, uh, we do things this way. He's part of an institution, and Jesus seems to be very anti-institution, and 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 their worlds are kind of in the midst of the beginnings, if you will, of the collide. And and Nicodemus is interested in finding out, um, I guess, more about Jesus, more about what he's about, seeing if he's on their side or what side he's on or what he's about. But he knows that. Um, there's a certain amount of risk to this inter- interaction, and maybe he's even ashamed to be um, coming to Jesus in this way. And so, I mean, I think an interesting question just from the first couple of verses that we can already kind of discern from the details is like, have we ever been ashamed of the company we're in? Like, like I think Nicodemus might be a little bit ashamed of the company he's in and like unwilling to like want his peers to see that he's actually interested in learning more that this Jesus guy's teaching. But then also, have we ever been in a position where we're maybe protecting um, our privilege or our position? uh, and, And at the same time, we're curious about something or we're starting to kind of long for knowing more about something that might challenge that. This is kind of the backdrop, the foundation of this story and this encounter. And so Jesus replies, this is in verses three through four. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That's what Jesus says to Nicodemus. And then Nicodemus responds, how can someone be born when they are old? Like very, he's, he's not like thinking metaphorically here. He's like, how does this work? Um, Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. <laughs> I think it's so funny that Jesus asks the question, or Jesus makes the statement that um, that uh, that that you can't see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And then Nicodemus immediately like starts breaking it down scientifically. Like, <laughs> how can someone be born again if they're old? Um, can't enter back into my mother's womb. Like, just this very interesting encounter here. Um, Jesus is addressing the Pharisee and saying, no one can see the kingdom of God. And I think that's a, that's an interesting statement to make because this is the person who is supposed to be in charge of like inspiring others to see the kingdom of God, inspiring others to see God's work um, in the world. Like that was the, that was one of the roles of these teachers, these Pharisees, these these, you know, elitist of the elite, if you will, spiritual leaders, like they were to inspire people to be able to see God at work in their world. And then I think it's very interesting that Jesus says, hey, in order to see the kingdom of God, uh, you need to be born again. Uh, Notice how Jesus doesn't tell anyone that's not a Pharisee, they need to be born again. 
I I think that's very unique and interesting. Um, You may not know this, but the word born again, or those two words compounded together, born again, um, is only found once in the Bible. The entire Bible is only found once. And it's only found in this interaction with Nicodemus. And I don't know what you know baggage you have with uh, those two words coupled together, born again, but you've probably heard it if you've grown up in church circles, applied to a number of things. You know, you must be born again and what that looks like and how that is. And here's what, you know, um, and, and it just becomes this language, this, you know, Christianese, if you will, that we use over and over and over and over again. But the context of it here is that Jesus doesn't tell the tax collectors they need to be born again. Jesus doesn't tell uh, the prostitutes that they need to be born again. Jesus doesn't tell the fishermen that, you know, are just doing the family trade that they need to be born again before they can follow him. This is the only place where Jesus uses this word picture of being born a second time, like being born again. And it seems the Pharisees are so set on their picture of who God is and, and, and they know everything about God that the only way they're going to be shook to the core to, to be able to see God uh, for who he is, to, to, to get a renewed vision of who God is, is going to be as drastic as being born again. I mean, not literally, but they're, they're literally going to have to unlearn everything. Start from the position of a child. Start from the, the humble position of a child and relearn. The, the, the image here. Uh, of being born again is really saying you need to have a necessary death to this old system so that you can be birthed into a new system. And so maybe some of us have, have this like the, this, this connection to religion, this connection to rules, this way of seeing God that has just not been helpful. It, it, maybe it's even been hurtful. I don't, I don't know about your experience or about your background, or maybe there's certain things within there that you're like, yeah, I need born again from that. That was a bad way of seeing God, or that was a a bad way of understanding God's love and grace and mercy toward me. And so here what's happening, I think, is Jesus is giving us this option and this opportunity to see that uh, coming to him can, can look like a rebirth, but it will always be us humbling ourselves and letting go of a system and a structure that maybe has has been um, helpful for us. Maybe it's actually allowed us to amass a certain amount of power or privilege or opportunity or connection with other people. Um, There's all kinds of reasons for Nicodemus not to be born again. There's all kinds of reasons for him to not leave the current system that he's a part of and and, and birth anew, if you will. And I think this word picture helps us kind of uh, reframe our understanding of God. And it's not, I just want to make it clear. It's not to say that the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the fishermen, that, that they didn't need their own transformation. It's just to say, almost like they were open, they were searching, they were looking, they knew, they knew what they had wasn't enough. They knew the position that they were in wasn't, wasn't filling them. But Sometimes I think when we are hyper-religious or when we um, kind of have this uh, better-than mentality, which I I can assume the Sanhedrin and this ruling council and and the Pharisees had this like, we're better than you, because we hear that throughout the scriptures of of the stories that we we get when we look into the the Pharisees, that there's this image of like um, pride that exists in this particular community. And Jesus is challenging that pride and saying, 
you got to be born again. Like the only way you're going to enter into this is as a child, humbly recognizing your need for it. The passage continues in verse uh, five, Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. He's responding to his question about uh, the literalness, if you will, of this. And then in verse seven, it says, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. So Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. Uh, is the spirit alive in you? Only God can birth that is kind of what he's saying. Like um, Jesus is getting to this core metaphor of the wind, uh, a metaphor of the spirit of God, and then even a metaphor of it, um, uh, like taking this picture of the wind. It's actually a windy day out today when I'm recording this and it's like really cold actually, but um, with with the wind, it it blows wherever it pleases. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. In essence, there's no restrictions on the wind. You can't, you can't, you can't like gather the wind and put it in a temple. You can't determine who the wind is for and who the wind is not for. It blows without restriction. Even sinners get this wind of the spirit. Like it's a unique um, new way of seeing God, seeing God through spirit. And I think it's interesting that Jesus said, like you, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born of the water and the spirit. And this, this image that the spirit of God is, is not to be controlled, not to be harnessed, not to be put in a temple, not to be put in a, a book of rules as they were particularly handling the Old Testament at that time. You can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. It's unpredictable. God's grace is so incredibly great. The love and mercy of God is so incredibly great that it is unpredictable. It will shock you who God's grace is for. The Pharisees believed in a very restrictive and predictable God. Jesus, just a few moments into this conversation, is challenging that image that Nicodemus has given his life to. And so what's Nicodemus's response going to be? Well, in verse nine, he says, how can this be? (laughs) How could this be? (laughs) Like his whole world is being brought into question. He's sitting with this other teacher that he has a respect for because he's seen him do things that he's like, whoa, hold on. Um, No one's doing that unless they're somehow connected to God. And he's like, "You're, you're, you're bringing my whole world down. It's like a house of cards. His understanding is crumbling. I don't know if you've ever had a faith crisis or a deconstruction process in your faith, but there, there, there usually comes a time where you realize uh, maybe you were handed a certain type of faith and, it, and you built it like a house of cards and then you pulled one card out and started examining it. And, and by the time you, you took your eyes off that card you, and, and, you, and you had maybe gained a new image of what that particular part of your faith looked like, you realize the entire house crumbled down because uh, some of us build a faith that is connected to like every single thing is connected to one another and we don't get a chance to examine it. And it seems as if Nicodemus, even in this particular question is like, how can this be? This challenges everything. I can't pull that card out and examine it. Cause if I do, everything comes crumbling down my whole reality. Like this is not just my faith. This is my 
career, my job, my, my standing in my tribe, how people see me. Uh, this has to be an, an interesting moment for Nicodemus as he's having this conversation with Jesus and asking this question of how can this be? And Jesus doesn't go easy on him. <laughs> like, I think it's interesting. Jesus' response in verse 10 is, you're Israel's teacher. And do you not understand these things? <laughs> I think that just like, like that question back to him is like, like, hold on, you don't understand this? You don't get this? Aren't you like a big teacher and stuff? And like, aren't you like Israel's teacher? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I just find that interesting. And then he says, very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people, I think that's interesting, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? See, like Jesus is even saying, like, I'm speaking in the context of earthly things, like being born again in the wind. What if I actually like brought the supernatural into this conversation? Like you can't even handle when I'm trying to give you metaphors and word pictures of the here and now. And then he goes in in verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus first reminds Nicodemus of his position. Like you're the teacher of Israel. Like how is this something you haven't discerned for yourself? And then Jesus proceeds to give him an Old Testament example using Moses to connect to the Messiah to the coming Messiah that by the way, everyone's waiting for this Messiah right now. And no one has an image of the Messiah coming as Jesus, as like a new teacher um, who's doing merciful things and including tax collectors and prostitutes and, and fishermen in his ministry. Like no one's really thinking that way. Um, they're thinking the Messiah is going to come as a king that's going to um, overthrow the Roman occupation because Rome is currently occupying uh, the, the Jewish people. And, and so that's their image of the Messiah that's coming. And so Moses, uh, in this particular passage, like connecting that to the Messiah, they're, they're, they would both like connect that. Like, it's important that the old Testament, like recognizing the old Testament, this collection of books would have been something that Nicodemus would have dedicated his life to like memorizing large portions and studying it nonstop. Like his knowledge of the Old Testament at the time, uh, there's only a few that would have probably had the knowledge that he had, and most of them would have been his peers um, on the Sanhedrin. And so so Moses would have been a hero probably of Nicodemus's, like, um, and a life that he was most incredibly familiar with. And, and for, for this encounter, like Jesus is trying to make this connection to the old, I think he's trying to say, so this, you're supposed to be the teacher of Israel. Have you not made this connection? Have you not seen even from your scriptures that you've dedicated so much of your time to what is coming? Have you not discerned that? And then uh, we go into everyone's favorite verse and you might not have even known this existed in the encounter of Nicodemus, but John three sixteen. like most of us, this is a verse we memorize as a young child in church or a verse we've heard of, or a verse we've seen held up at football games. I don't know, but, um, but, but ultimately this is being spoken to a Pharisee. Um, and I think that's, that's really important. So here, here's what it says, just in case you didn't memorize John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
what I think is interesting about this is it breaks breaks down some things. Like it expresses first and foremost God's love, but God's love not just for the Israelite people, for the world. This is unique because uh, Nicodemus and 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 his particular tribe, his particular role would have been very. Israel-centered, God's people. We are God's people. God is for us. God is against everyone else. Like this kind of image that, that we are the people chosen by God. And here Jesus is saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The love of God is so vast that God would step into human history through Jesus and offer life. Now, I don't think Nicodemus is making that connection necessarily here. Maybe he is. Maybe he's seeing Jesus as um, the 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 Son. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's thinking he's speaking about the coming Messiah. Um, but this passage is great, and it's totally worth the popularity that uh, it, it's had. I wish we would put it in its context more and recognize that, like, we use this as an evangelistic. Um, uh, passage, if you will, but it's really being spoken to a religious leader, which I think is unique. Um, maybe sometimes um, those of us who are religious leaders, those of us who are in positions within the church, need to be reminded of the expansive grace of God, the expansive love of God for the entire world. Um, but I wish we would also memorize the verse that follows, like verse 17, I think is really important. Because if you listen to the end of verse 16, it says that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The emphasis is on belief, like the belief in Jesus. And then in verse 17, it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Like the purpose of the son is not condemnation. The purpose of Jesus is not condemnation. Again, let's compare this to the Pharisees. For the Pharisees, it's all about condemnation. Like, are you doing it right? Are you doing it the right way? Are you following through the way you're supposed to? And here it's like, there's no condemnation. I'll read it again. The passage says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So I have to believe at this point, Nicodemus is really shook because we've already gone through born again talk, right? Uh, We've gone through him having this like house of cards moment of like, how, how can this be? Like how? How does this work? And then being challenged as, as the, the, the teacher of Israel, but not really uh, having a whole lot of knowledge. I know how hard that can be and how humiliating that can even be to, to, to feel like you don't have the knowledge that someone else right there has or that you're really missing the mark in your particular uh, area of expertise or area you know, that, that you've given your life to. And now he's being told like, no, God's not about condemnation. That's not what God's about. God's about like saving his creation, saving again, the world. Like, so Jesus continues to share 
how these two worlds, um, the world that Nicodemus has given his life to and the world that Jesus is kind of bringing about uh, are, are really on a crash course for a collision. Like the collision is coming. Uh, we see that later on in the Gospels, but uh, this is the like beginnings of, of expressing the, the vast differences between these two particular worldviews. And then Jesus continues to share to Nicodemus in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Listen, verse 18 is directed at Nicodemus and directed at his particular people. Like you have not believed in Jesus. You have not, you stand condemned because you're connected to a system, to a structure and a way of seeing God that is so disconnected. And then he goes into, in the next verse, the verse before about condemnation, about there being no condemnation and about um, that, and about uh, save the world through him. Like the idea of like, um, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. There's this emphasis on expansion. Like this is bigger than it, than it is for the Pharisees. This is bigger than it is than just uh, God being in a temple. And, and, and so that's expansive. And then Jesus brings it back in. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. In essence, they're connected to an old way of understanding God. They have not entered into the new way of seeing God's son. And then he, then uh, Jesus continues, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now, you might say, well, that light and dark metaphor makes it very clear. That's a, that's a sin and holiness metaphor there, Justin. And maybe it is. Um, if you want to take it like just out of the context of the story, then sure. I think it's a challenge to Nicodemus. Don't come to me by the cloak of night. Don't come to me in the dark. Do you hate the light? Like it's definitely a metaphor for the deeds being exposed, like he says in the passage. But this is all emphasized. Like I, I, what I really want us to understand is when we read this particular encounter of Jesus, it's, we, we, we have to remember the person Jesus is talking to. Yes, there's a broader context. Yes, we can pull some of these passages out and see themes with other things Jesus is saying across his ministry, and they can connect to a broader um, you know, statement about all people. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not putting that aside, but for this particular passage... What's being said? And, and in this particular moment of the passage, light has come into the world, but people love the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. He's saying, Nicodemus, you've loved coming to me in the middle of dark because you know your deeds are evil. You know the system that you're a part of isn't good. It's not helping. It's not helping people understand who God is. It, it might even be hurting people's image of God. You know that. And so you're curious. But like, 
you got to step into the light. Like, you got to step into the light. I know you're afraid of your deeds being exposed, but whoever lives by truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And then the story ends just like that. It drops off on a cliff. There's no resolution. Like, and I, I kind of can't stand that, but I, I almost think like when I think of this particular encounter, I almost think this is like the, you know, the hammer dropping moment. Like Jesus just puts this big call out to Nicodemus. Like if the disciples are around watching this encounter and if, if Nicodemus is, you know, like if there's any amount of other people around, they're all kind of like jaw dropped. Like you're talking to a Pharisee like this, like, and not just talking to a Pharisee like this, you're, you're telling him like, he needs to step into the light. Like how dare he come see you in the dark? How dare he come to you in this particular way? And so the question is, did Nicodemus change? Was he mad at what Jesus said or did he find like it just to be a challenge that he had to go back and think about? How did he respond um, in that moment? We don't, we don't know. We, we just, we don't know. Um, the story just ends. We do know that Jesus created a space of belonging for a Pharisee, even by the cover of night. I just want to, while Jesus definitely says some challenging things, he pushes him. Um, he also uh, allows him to have a path into what he's doing. He, he expresses the, the realities of two very different ways of understanding God. But he invites the, the Pharisee, Nicodemus, to be a part of it. And this seems to have had an impression. Much later, Jesus is crucified and then buried. And we don't often focus a whole lot on the actual burial of Jesus. But if we jump ahead to John 19, so this is the same book, John 19, 38. It says, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. And then it says in the next verse, he was accompanied by Nicodemus. Interesting. Interesting that Joseph of Arimathea would be accompanied by Nicodemus. And then it says, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. So we're connecting back to John 3. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Nicodemus is back. We have not seen Nicodemus anywhere in the in-between, by the way. We don't know anything that's happened with Nicodemus. Um, we could very well think that Nicodemus is a bad guy. I don't know in this whole story as Jesus is having encounters with Pharisees. Where's Nicodemus? Is he kind of standing off in the back watching it all happen? Is he in the, in, you know, at the center of it? Is he one of the people asking Jesus more questions in the future, but just not being named? We don't know. Ultimately, what we do know is Nicodemus has this encounter with Jesus in the middle of the night. Now Jesus is dead and Nicodemus is participating in the burial. And it's important to announce that like 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe, this would likely be the modern day equivalent of like 150 to $200,000 worth of goods. Like even for someone of his likely wealth and stature, this is a lot of money. Um, Nicodemus is invested in this burial. 
Um, he, he seems to have a connectedness to the person of Jesus through his encounter at night and probably struggling to know his place in the Jewish ruling council moving forward. See, what I, what I find unique about this story and compelling about this story is that Jesus creates a space of belonging even for someone who's super religious. Then Jesus is patient, like really patient. I think it's important that we recognize like one of the attributes, one of, the attributes of love is love is patient. Because sometimes acting on our belief takes a long time, right? I know some of you begin to have a change of heart on a particular way of seeing God or a particular way of understanding God. And you kind of had that change of heart and then you had to process it and then you had to process it some more. And then you finally came to the point to where you were like, you know what? I think, I think I believe that. I think I believe that. But now I got to figure out how that transforms the way I live. And then that was a whole nother process, right? That was a whole nother process of like, okay, well, that's going to have a huge impact if I change that, if I, if I go that direction. And it takes time for us to transform our beliefs, to renew our beliefs, to be born again in the way we see God. Like that takes time. Give yourself some time. Like, don't feel like you have to rush. And here's the other thing, and this is the harder thing. Don't feel like other people are going to do it at the same pace you did. Love them with a patience that we see on display here with Jesus from chapter 3 all the way to his burial. We don't see any movement in Nicodemus, but it may be happening behind the scenes. And as we love those who we disagree with or love those who have views of God that we just can't understand or we can't wrap our heads around, what does it look like for us to say, all right, I know how hard it is to let go of that system. Maybe I was a part of it at once. Maybe, you know, maybe I had uh, to, to, to go through a whole journey and process myself to change the way I see God. I can't deny that that was a process for me and I'd much rather love someone patiently through their process than poke and prod them the whole way and make it more about me than about their relationship with God. We want to be the people, I hope at least we want to be the people who encourage people to reconsider the way they see God, to like, to not be afraid to renew their mind on the way that they've come to know God, that that's not a scary thing, that's an okay thing. But if we don't have a patient community that's willing to journey with them as they ask those questions and voice those doubts, and that expresses a love, the love of God throughout that, then that road becomes much harder. That road of transformation becomes much harder. And I also think there's something to be said here of the justice that Jesus is arguing for. We definitely have to be patient with those people who maybe we sense that there's some movement happening, but we also don't need to be quiet. Like, I think it's interesting how Jesus ends this passage of saying, talking about deeds and talking about the light and the darkness and the evil and the good and this, this imagery that like what you're doing is not helpful. 
What you're doing, Nicodemus, is not helpful. What you've given your life to, this group, it's really missing the mark. And then you coming to me by night because you still want to protect your status within this group. You want to protect your privilege within this group. This is not good. Nothing good's going to come, you know, if you continue to do this. If you continue to come by the cloak of night, like at some point, you're going to have to lay it all out in the light. I think there's something to be said for challenging people to take a step, for pushing, for prodding. Now, certainly as we have those relationships, we might recognize that patience is our best response, but never in the face of injustice or in the face of people putting God in a box, especially God's grace and mercy and love in a box, do we want to wait. In that position, we want to challenge that idea and say, no, God's grace, mercy, and love is so much more expansive. And we can say that while still loving someone patiently, personally. But we also have to advocate for a God who's not bound in a temple or bound in a church or bound in a dogma or bound in a a particular creed that a particular group of people have determined is theirs. Like whatever our experience is, we want to say, no, no, no. God's love, grace, and mercy goes beyond anything we bind it to. And so this is one of the encounters of Jesus that I find compelling, that I find challenging, that I also find really encouraging because I need it on both ends. I need people to be patient with me. I need people to be patient as I'm processing things, as I'm not sure if I'm ready to change the way I see that. I also need people to be prodding me (laughs) and saying, don't get complacent. I also need Jesus to look at me and say, what privilege do you have and how are you using that? Are you putting me in a box or are you reminding people of my expansive love and grace? So my question to you in closing this episode out is how do you need this story? What about this story connects to you? What about this story challenges you? What about this story comforts you? What about this story inspires you to go and live differently? May you go and live a life that is beyond boundaries, giving others love, exploring new ideas, and championing belonging.